Now? Yeah. All right, awesome. Uh, I'm the Executive Director of the Economic Opportunities Program here at the Aspen Institute. I'm very delighted to welcome you to today's uh, conversation on uh, inclusive economic development and to congratulate you for making your way through our snowy, slushy city. Um, it's been uh, quite a weekend of weather, so uh, I'm really, really pleased to see so many of you manage to make it uh, and join us here today. Um, at the Economic Opportunities Program, our mission is to advance promising policy strategies, ideas, practices that can help low and moderate income Americans uh, connect to and thrive in today's changing economy. Um, in 2013, we launched the Working in America series to bring a diverse set of voices together uh, to discuss the changing nature of work, specific issues that are impeding success among working Americans, and ideas for opening economic opportunity more broadly. Um, all of our previous sessions are available. If you're new to us here, they, you can uh, see previous sessions at on our website, as.pn slash working in America. Um, I also invite you to tweet, um, and uh, we use the hashtag talkgoodjobs, um, but please do uh, silence your phones. Um, I also want to thank in particular the, the Ford Foundation, the Charles Stuart Mott Foundation, the Walmart Foundation, and the Cerdna Foundation, who are the supporters of our Working in America series. And I particularly want to uh, recognize our, our friends from the Cerdna Foundation who are here with us today. And I believe somebody from the Ford Foundation is also joining us. Um, uh, uh, certain Foundation and Ford have been uh, leading investors in uh, the practice of in inclusive economic development, and, and so um, we're really grateful to them for their work in this, uh, on this particular subject. Um, I also want to give a shout out to our colleagues in the Community Strategies Group, who are our thought partners uh, uh, in, uh, in uh, managing this event. There's more materials about them and from some of our speakers out on our materials table. Um, if you didn't get a chance to see the materials table on your way in, please do take a look um, on your way out. Um, the changing nature of work in America has indeed created many challenges for working, Ameri for working Americans. Uh, if we're following the economic news, we hear reports about uh, job creation, right? The job numbers, we've been growing jobs for the past few years now, but, um, but unfortunately wages have not been rising at all. Uh, we hear about uh, changing technology requiring new demands for working people to have uh, more skills. But unfortunately, the financial burden of pursuing more education continues to grow. Uh, we read reports of business success and building wealth, but yet that wealth remains concentrated in the hands of the few. We struggle with the challenge of economic inequality, a challenge that is reflected in the many uh, political and social divisions with which we're now grappling. There's rising concern that this inequality may be impeding the continued economic growth that we've, we've been benefiting from. And that brings us to really the importance of today's conversation about inclusive economic development. Economic development, uh, the practice of economic development, it typically focuses on supporting business success because business is, of course, both important job creators and important wealth creators in our communities. Uh, but since the turn of the millennium, we have seen a marked decline in the proportion of income generated by corporations that goes to wage and salaries and an increasing share going to profits. And this has been part of the driver of what we now see in this economic inequality, this growing division between work and wealth. If our economic narrative in America about hard work and hard work paying off and being the pathway to success is to remain true, then we cannot continue to support a, a growing divide between work and wealth. So in today's conversation, we have a terrific set of speakers to talk about how building local regional economies in which businesses succeed and working people succeed 
in which economic success is not defined narrowly by business profits, but broadly by enhanced quality of life and community well-being. Um, so I think this is a truly important conversation for, days, for today's economy and the context that we find ourselves in. And I want to now quickly just put names to faces of our speakers. You have more materials about them in the materials on your chair, so you can read about their um, very accomplished and illustrious backgrounds. Uh, but let me just quickly uh, introduce them to, the, to you so we can uh, begin our conversation. Um, and so, right next to me, I have Sanjay Pinto, a sociologist and fellow at the Worker Institute at Cornell and also at Rutgers School of Management and Labor Relations. Uh, next to Sanjay is Marjorie Kelly, Executive Vice President and Senior Fellow with the Democracy Collaborative. Uh, sitting next to Marjorie is uh, Mayor Dwight C. Jones from Richmond, Virginia. Uh, next to the mayor is, <coughs> oh, I can't see her, uh, Emily <laughs> Kawano, <laughs> co-director of the Wellspring Cooperative Corporation. And very happy to have uh, Dorian Warren here, fellow at the Roosevelt Institute, MSNBC contributor and board chair of Center for Community Change to moderate today's discussion. So. Uh, Dorian, let me turn it over to you. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Maureen, and thank you to Maureen, Vicki, and the entire staff of the Economic Opportunities Program for allowing us to have this conversation. I think we're all excited to jump in and talk about what is inclusive economic growth, and particularly at this moment, as Maureen mentioned, of, of in many ways of shifting of the debate between equity, inclusion, and growth that we've been witnessing, I think, over the last four or five years, and some of the underlying assumptions that somehow equity and inclusivity was a trade-off with growth. And we have research, whether it's from the IMF at the national level, but especially I'm thinking of a recent book by Manuel Pastor and his colleagues that shows that regions that engage in more inclusive and equitable growth activities grew faster over time than those that were places that were much more unequal in terms of economic development. So we want to parse this morning or this afternoon what is inclusive economic growth and what are some real live existing practical examples and strategies of how to pursue a different way of including people and residents in particular in, in many of our cities and places around the country in equitable growth policies. So I want to jump right in and actually start with you Marjorie and ask you to talk about what the Democracy Collaborative means by the phrase building community wealth. You invented that phrase about a decade ago. There's some materials, by the way, on the resource table that go much more in depth on what this means. But you issued a report on building community wealth. Can you give us a very quick overview of what this approach is and how it engages community differently than traditional approaches to economic growth? Yeah, yeah, that's great. This is something we've been working on for, <clears throat> I think, a decade or more. And it's the idea that, you know, in, tr in traditional economic development, you try to attract companies through subsidies. Um, Let me, you know, can I pause you? Can everybody hear? Can people hear me? Can, can we turn the, her, her mic on? Do I need to turn it on here? Oh, my little green light's there, on. That's much better. There, there we go. go. Okay. Magic happened. Thank you. Yeah, okay, so I think we all know traditional economic development. You know, you attract big companies through subsidies, you bring in a Walmart, <clears throat> uh, and so forth. Community wealth building is about you start instead with local assets, and you're developing local assets of many kinds, including, uh, you know, e ecology and people skills, and, you know, uh, so what is it that you have to work with? You know, how do you 
Uh, keep wealth local through locally rooted ownership, ideally broadly held. You work collaboratively. This is not just something that government is doing with the private sector. You're also involving foundations and nonprofits, so you're always working collaboratively. You, know, you, you intend to be inclusive. You don't just you know, grow the downtown and hope everybody's going to benefit because we know that they won't. Um, but, uh, and, and you involve local anchor institutions, and we define those as major uh, nonprofit uh, organizations like hospitals and universities that have a, a trillion dollars of spend in the economy. They're not moving anywhere. They're not going to up and leave. So how can you localize some of that purchasing, hiring, and so forth? So that's community uh, wealth building or building community wealth. It's a kind of a systems approach to getting something going locally and keeping that wealth local. And just a quick follow-up. How, how, what's been the response to these efforts where you've studied them and where you've engaged with them relative again to traditional practices of economic development? Sure, sure. Well, you know, um, Ted Howard, our president, started in, in Cleveland. He, he helped uh, create the Evergreen Cooperatives there, a network of worker-owned cooperatives, working with closely with the Cleveland Foundation and also with anchors. And so that uh, has been very successful, like University Hospitals in Cleveland has is creating a pipeline for employment in low-income neighborhoods, have been able to create uh, many, many jobs. Lots of anchor institutions are catching on around the country, uh, getting excited about this. We're working with Kaiser Permanente in California. They want to uh, do think of themselves completely with an anchor mission. Uh, we're working with uh, Mayor Jones, and Richmond has their own Office of Community Wealth Building. So we're starting to see this idea catch on. People come to study uh, the Evergreen Cooperatives from all over the world. So we, we really see that people are hungry for ideas and are, are, are searching out good ideas and, and wanting to go with them. So that was, that was a great segue, Marjorie. Thank you. Because <laughs> Mayor Jones, I, I so want to ask you about your Office of Community Wealth Building. It's the first of its kind in the country. Yeah. Talk to us about the idea for it, what, why you started this office, your aspirations for it, <clears throat> and then what are the strategies that the office pursues? to engage in a different kind of economic development in Richmond, Virginia? Well, Richmond is a, uh, well, you can really hear me, can't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, you have that great baritone, too, so that helps. Uh, Richmond is a city that uh, suffers from the residual effects of uh, economic um, and policy um, decisions years ago that still mm. affect us today. Um, Richmond is the tale of two cities. One mm. is uh, a a city that is very vibrant and thriving. Uh, the other uh, has 25% poverty for adults and 40% poverty for young people. Um, I come from a city where policies were developed where highways divided communities, expressways destroyed communities, and we still feel that today. It's amazing mm. that so many years after that, in addition to that, we uh, have a community where poverty was concentrated. Mm -hmm. And so we still have the concentrated poverty. And so when I became mayor, I recognized that um, I would have the opportunity to maybe tackle some of this. I also found out that in order for our city to receive AAA bond rating, we had to reduce mm. the level of poverty. Mm. And so we looked at it for many, many, many reasons. And so I was convinced that the thing we needed to do was not to create another program or to just throw money at it, but to really see if we could systemically try to make a difference that would lift entire um, neighborhoods and entire groups of people. And so that's how we borrowed the name mm -hmm. from, from you, Marjorie, and that uh, we developed the Office on Community Wealth Building, which is now part of the city government of Richmond. 
And just to clarify something you said, because I think it's really important to lift this up. This office pursues not only job creation strategies, but it sounds like it's an anti-poverty mm -hmm. set of strategies simultaneously. Well, I mean, that's our number one job, is to reduce poverty. Um, uh, I don't know that we're going to be labeled as anti-poverty, but, but <laughs> uh, you know, that's our number one job. But it's much more than getting jobs for people, because there are barriers that come along with getting jobs for people. People want jobs sometimes, but they don't have daycare. They don't have uh, the kind of training that they need. And so our Office on Community Wealth Building has wraparound services. We have uh, a menu of things that we do to help people get ready for the job market. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Sanjay, two questions for you. First, if you can provide us with your own definition of inclusive economic growth or inclusive economic development. But secondly, I know that you study a term that's becoming more and more popular and many people are asking, what are these things? So talk to us about what are worker cooperatives and how they are a necessary or an important strategy in inclusive economic development. Great, so I'll start with the second question and then um, address the first one. Uh, so worker cooperatives are basically um, a democratically controlled enterprise in which broad-based control becomes coupled with broad-based ownership. Um, you know, each member has an equal share in the enterprise and an equal vote. Uh, the, the footprint of co-ops in the U.S. economy is still relatively small. We have around three or 400 of these enterprises um, that employ around 7,000 workers, according to a recent estimate by the Democracy at Work Institute. But we are, we've seen since the Great Recession, the financial crisis, what seems to be a real surge in co-op mm -hmm. development. So between 2010 and 2013 alone, there were 80 new co-ops that were created. Uh, and what we're seeing, sort of going along with the conversation that we, we've been having over here, is that this is happening, you know, these clusters are emerging in places where you have a supportive ecosystem. So you have anchor institutions, incubating organizations, um, some cases, supportive government policies and infusion of resources. All of this is true in New York City, where I'm based. There's, there's also other ways in which broad-based ownership can be extended to workers. So in the American context, the most important of these is the Employee Share Ownership Plan, or the ESOP. Um, there are around uh, 7,000 ESOP firms altogether in the U.S. employing millions of workers, so it's a lot bigger footprint than you know, worker co-ops. And you see that about 1,000 of these are majority worker-owned. Um, there's also quite a number which do give workers significant control rights. And so on top of what is essentially a retirement plan, you know, ESOPs were created out of ERISA in the 1970s, you can create what are really pretty democratic structures. Um, so looping back to something that Maureen talked about at the beginning, I think an important context for this is, is absolutely economic inequality. We know that wage inequality has been rising. Uh, we also know based on recent work by Thomas Piketty that the distribution of capital income is even more unequal. And we see evidence that broad-based worker ownership can really help to address this form of inequality. Uh, and in terms of what you were saying, you know, your question about inclusive economic growth, I think the conversation that we're having here really challenges existing paradigms. Um, 
So oftentimes we have this notion of economic elites who are kind of, you know, engaging in policy making on behalf of the people. Um, and I think what we're talking about here is, you know, you can't just think about the ends that you want, but actually creating processes that are more inclusive, which will create, you know, outcomes that are more attentive to community needs, uh, and also, you know, be more legitimate at the end of the day. Um, and then the other thing, you know, from my perspective, given the research that I've been doing, um, I think another key point is that it's not just about democratizing the policy-making process, um, but actually thinking about how we can extend democracy into the economic arena, right? Um, and fundamentally change, like, so if we think about firms as the basic building blocks of our economy, how can we fundamentally remake the structures of firms so that they're more democratic? Great, we'll come back to this question of uh, democratic voice and the economic development process in a bit, but I want to get Emily in the conversation, especially on worker ownership and worker co-ops, because you co-founded the Wellspring Cooperative Corporation in 2011. It's a network of worker-owned cooperatives that work with anchor institutions, which we've, we've mentioned already, labor and community organizations to support marginalized and disadvantaged communities. Can you tell us this, the status of Wellspring today from um, 2011, and, and I should say, Emily founded this in Springfield, Massachusetts. Okay, um, so we spent a, a couple years doing, developing the relationships, building the relationship, relationships with all these different um, anchor institutions, as well as community economic development, community labor organizations, as well as doing the research uh, about what might be feasible um, businesses. Um, Two years ago, we launched our first business, which is a upholstery cooperative. Um, so it's it's hit its second birthday and is profitable. Not a, not very profitable, so there's not a lot of profit to share. But it is you know it is there's a small profit at least we're you know breaking even. So that's it's good in our second year. Um, we have seven workers. Um, we're very very. Um, tied into the anchor institutions, so the, the major hospitals, um, Mass Mutual, a big player, UMass, the local colleges are very important to that work. Um, we have, we're working on uh, a greenhouse, that's a major area, we're working with the Springfield Redevelopment Authority to try to get a, almost a two acre parcel um, for a hydroponic greenhouse in a, in a pretty, uh, pretty underserved uh, neighborhood of Springfield. Um, we're also working with a women-owned uh, uh, business. It's called Old Window Workshop. They, they renovate old windows instead of them getting hauled off to the dump. Um, this Old Window Workshop has been operating more as a, as a kind of a project, a great <coughs> idea, but kind of start and stop when they get jobs. Um, so we're working with them. It's, in some ways, it's like a conversion. Um, we're working to get a real stable foundation and to really build them into a, a worker-owned cooperative. Um, uh, so those are some where we're working with a group in Greenfield that came to us and was interested in, in thinking about a laundry uh, tied into the hospital. And since one of our anchors is the Bay State Hospital, um, we agreed to take this on. So we've done a feasibility study and we're hoping that that will develop as an affiliate. Um, so there's some other smaller things in, in process. We're working with a, so a group of immigrants that are interested in starting their own um, landscaping company um, cooperative. So uh, yeah, we're, we're in the process of building, at, 
building out the network in a lot of different, through different strategies in different areas. And just a quick follow-up with you. Can you say a little bit more about how many worker cooperatives are part of your network? Um, you gave us a great sense of the different products and services, but uh, can you give us a sense of how many different worker co-ops are part of your network, how many stakeholders and partners you have and you've engaged? With? Right now we have the one business that we launched. I so see. that's I the see. only one, that's our first, right? The greenhouse is pretty close. Um, we'll probably be breaking ground in the spring. Um, the old window workshop mm -hmm. is, you know, it's just not quite official. We're, we're wanting to get some things um, really firmed up before that officially becomes a member of the network. So that'll probably be pretty soon, within, I'd say, a month or so. And just to follow up, um, another follow-up, what was the problem you were trying to solve by launching Wellspring in 2011? If you could just give us quickly some context. Right, so Springfield is a, a medium-sized city. Uh, it's a kind of a classic uh, Rust Belt, deindustrialized city. Springfield has this glorious industrial heritage, right? Really pioneered interchangeable parts, lay the groundwork for mass production, really. Um, and since, you know, since has fallen into very hard times. Very high levels of unemployment and poverty and all those terrible markers. Um, and the city's main strategy right now is uh, bringing in a casino. And so, uh, yeah, I wish we had, I wish we had an office that was more sympathetic, but it's been, it really has been uh, kind of a struggle. Um, so, yeah, it's about creating, creating jobs, first and foremost. And when we, so we um, brought Ted Howard out early on. That was a really key, critical thing. We brought a delegation of people from Springfield out to Cleveland. Again, that was really critical in getting people to believe. Um, yeah, when we went around to the anchor institutions, if, when we talked about jobs, they didn't really care if it was co-ops or what. Um, they just wanted to hear about jobs and maybe something a little bit different. Um, because I think a lot of people in a, in a city like Springfield realize that the, the, what they've been pursuing hasn't been working. So I want to stay on this theme of jobs because there are jobs and there's job creation and then there are good jobs. And what we know from some of the research which has tried to evaluate, say, empowerment and enterprise zones over the last two or three decades, community development block grants, many of these federal programs created jobs, but often they were low-wage jobs. But in some cases, the unintended effects of, say, empowerment zones was they might have created jobs, but it also might have led to gentrification of the community. So the very residents they were seeking to help, they ended up pushing out. So I want to stay on this, this notion of good jobs and ask you, Mr. Mayor, how your administration has been involved, what strategies have you used to connect residents to good jobs? And again, how is it different from traditional economic development processes and programs? Well, you know, all, all economic development does not accrue to the benefit of poor people. And so it's important to make sure that we try to first of all, attract jobs that uh, poor people can have, that pay enough that poor people or families can live on, and where they are geographically able to access the jobs. Mm -hmm. um, the other piece of it is that um, the government that brings the jobs in, or the economic development departments that bring the jobs in, 
have got to be proactive when they are talking to these companies who want to come into the city mm -hmm. and let them know what the deal is in my city. And, and if you're coming here, um, there will be uh, diversity. If you're coming here, there will be programs to prepare people who need jobs to get jobs here. Mm -hmm. So we want you to come, love for you to come. We just had a company come in, Stone Brewing Company, a huge uh, microbrewery company, and they're bringing 300 jobs. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to get them to agree to train uh, people who are in, in poverty for some of those jobs. Just had a job fair the other day with um, 1,000 people attending. So we, we, we have got to be intentional about making sure that the economic development accrues to the benefit not only uh, of the city, but particularly to uh, the impoverished, the poor community. You just mentioned job training, which is important because we've spent billions of dollars over the decades on workforce development and job training programs, many of which have not worked very well. How is this effort different? Well, you have to break down the silos in city government or in any government so that you don't have a crowd over here doing one thing, a crowd over here doing another thing. And so when we created our Office on Community Wealth Building, we consolidated all of the uh, things that were designed to work with people who were impoverished mm -hmm. and put them under one umbrella so that we are able to have a workforce training component that uh, complements the entire city. And so we were able to host the World Cycling Championships this year, the first time that they were in the United States for the last uh, 25 years. And we had welders that we had trained ourselves. Mm -hmm welders who built some of the barriers for uh, the cycling race. And these fellows, many of whom um, are uh, felons, uh, mm -hmm. are now in line to get jobs that pay 25 to $50 an hour. Mm -hmm. uh, on this theme of, Marjorie, I want to come to you on this theme of good jobs. And I want to ask you to talk to us about why traditional economic development processes, programs, have not provided good jobs. They've yeah. provided some jobs, but not good jobs. And mm -hmm. how do community wealth building approaches differ from these traditional approaches in sure. terms of this good jobs question? Yeah, well, you know, I think traditional economic development is, is often about, you know, counting, you're counting jobs. Mm -hmm. You know, how many jobs can we create? How many can, and it's, of course, it's a lot faster to just bring in, you know, a, a, a thousand sort of bad jobs than it is to, to grow some, some real good jobs local, locally. So, um, so I think we're, we're captive partly to the, to the wrong metrics. And as you said, we need to be looking at good jobs, not just um, any old job. But, you know, so it, when you're developing local jobs, it, it, it takes longer, as Emily said, you know, and yeah, you're in the black after two years, that's fabulous. It's longer. It, uh, yeah, the metrics are lower, so I think we need some patience with that. Um, so how does this help jobs? Well, you know, one of the things that we looked at in our, in our report, um, it's called uh, Cities Building Community Wealth, and, and we looked at some of the problems with, with traditional economic development. Right now, for example, high tech is a really big thing. Everybody wants to attract high tech industries. You know, everybody wants to have their own Google or whatever. But, but when you look at it, you, you discover that those are creating uh, very few jobs for a very few people. And um, some of these high-tech firms are hiring 3% uh, African-Americans, 2% Hispanics. I mean, it's appalling, the, the inclusive um, record of these companies. And then often, you know, if you start a high-tech company, it's, it's being success is it's going to go public, 
meaning it's ownership shares trade on public markets. And then the first thing that happens then is you start squeezing wages. Maybe you outsource production overseas. So, you know, we have this kind of mental model of what success looks like. And that model is driving us in the wrong direction. And so, you know, as Sanjay said, this is, this is a whole new paradigm, you know? It's really a, a new paradigm. It's not just, oh, great, let's start some worker co-ops. It's a different paradigm of how to organize an economy. And, uh, you know, for example, and, and, and worker co-ops are a huge piece of it. Um, you can't start all the companies that, that you need. We also think converting companies, uh, existing companies, to worker ownership is important. Uh, for example, um, when you look at employee-owned companies, research shows that they pay up to 12% more in wages. Employees have two or three times their retirement savings. Um, and so uh, there are lots of companies, if we can keep them locally owned, convert to, to uh, employee ownership, you're, you're going to have better jobs. You're going to have more financial security. And uh, an, another key piece is um, uh, social enterprises. I want to put that sort of on people's mental map, too. And these are often owned by nonprofits, or they might be you know, kind of marginally profitable enterprises. For example, in, in Minneapolis, uh, Mayor Met Betsy Hodges has something called a green deconstruction pilot project. She's working with a local nonprofit to hire hmm. um, felons. This is something you talked about, um, Mayor Jones. Um, and they're you know, deconstructing um, uh, waste and keeping it out of the waste stream and creating, creating good jobs. So it's a partnership between cities and social enterprises. So you know, when you turn your lens in, you say, we want to be inclusive. We want to uh, you know, create good jobs. And we want to be a little patient with how to do it. Um, th that's the territory that I think that, that we're all working here. I just want to say one thing, uh, by the way. We, we feel very fortunate to have named this community wealth building. But it's, it's emerging spontaneously lots of places. I know we have <coughs> Janet Topolsky here. Uh, has been a great leader in this, this whole idea of building community wealth. And it gets called different things. Mm -hmm. But lots of people have been working on this for a very long time. Um, and it's just a question of sort of naming it and, and seeing what's going on. And just a, a quick follow-up with you, Marjorie. So we have Richmond as a represented here as a city. Yeah. You just mentioned Minneapolis. Are there mm -hmm. one or two other places where you see these successful experiments working? Yeah, I'll, I'll name a couple. Um, <clears throat> we're doing some work in, in Rochester right now. Mm -hmm. And working uh, in that city, we're, we're suggesting to them um, that they ought to consider creating, you know, inside city government, uh, working collaboratively with the community, uh, a center that would really be working for worker ownership on, all, along three dimensions. And one is uh, startups. The other is growing companies, like through anchor institutions and helping uh, uh, firms get ready for these big anchor contracts. And the third is conversions. Uh, and th this is also happening in Oakland a project called Project Equity, there, uh, the, uh, the city there is committed to working for, uh, for worker ownership in a big way. One other I'll mention is uh, Portland, Oregon. There's some really fascinating stuff there. Uh, two, two things, just real quick. They, their economic development uh, department uh, did a program to help local entrepreneurs. You know, and that sounds great, right? We're going to help local entrepreneurs. She said, uh, that, uh, a woman there told us, after year one, they got all these entrepreneurs in the room, and they looked around, and they said, it's all white males. Um, so they started a second program, which was inclusive. So it, it emphasized uh, people of color and women as entrepreneurs. So uh, that's, that's been, uh, I think, a, a real 
learning experience for everyone. They also, uh, Portland also has something called um, Clean Energy Works. And this is um, the, a, a deep role of government. Well, they're saying we want to, you know, uh, green the economy and insulate homes and so forth. But there, there's a mandate that half of the jobs have to go to the unemployed or the mm. disadvantaged. Mm. So, you know, while we're doing greening, we're going to also create good jobs along the way. So that's another nice thing. Thank model. you. Emily, I want to come back to you and ask you to help us understand some of the lessons you've learned from worker ownership, ownership models. And so can you talk to us about two things? One, what are some of the benefits of worker ownership? But then secondly, what are some of the challenges you've experienced in trying to advance this different kind of business strategy? Well, uh, first of all, in the long term, I think one of the benefits is profit sharing. But like I said, we don't really have a lot of profits to share right now. <laughs> um, but certainly, you know, um, that's, that's, that's a big, a big mm -hmm. part of it and is about um, asset development. Mm -hmm. um, so right now, immediately, I think one of the big benefits is um, the learning that's going on um, in the workshop. So we do weekly trainings. We don't, so we're up against the pressure of it's a business and they have to produce. And um, there's real pressure there. There's just a real hard reality. So mm -hmm. it's not like I get a huge amount of time to do these um, sort of co-op development trainings. Um, but we do make sure that we do it every week. And um, I think it's been really helpful to people, many of whom have no familiarity with workplace democracy whatsoever. It's completely foreign to them. And so that's, that's been a very interesting and, and gratifying experience and give and take and very participatory. Um, I think we also have been very um, supportive. We have engaged in everything from, you know, we've had lots of crises. Um, given the, the kind of folks that we're trying to employ. Mm -hmm. So ranging from homelessness for a little while to some mental health issues to some, uh, some of our folks have had some really challenging health problems. Um, so we've really worked with them to try to be flexible, to try to get them hooked up. Unfortunately, the, uh, in terms of that wraparound um, services support system, it's pretty fragmented, so uh, we wish we had a one-stop place where we, can, we could um, hook people up um, when they're in crisis. Uh, but we, we do the best we can. Those, a lot of those services exist, but it's very fragmented. So that's, that's a great thing um, to have it consolidated. Um, let's see uh, some of the challenges. Um, this whole culture of ownership is mm. difficult. Mm. Um, mm. People are used to coming in and being workers and clocking out. And do you mean in terms of it's more, there are more obligations and responsibilities in, in an ownership model versus an employee model? Yeah, responsibilities, but also just things like goofing around or, uh, yeah. Sometimes, you know, there certainly are issues that come up around um, productivity, mm -hmm. absolutely. You know, how much time are you spending on the phone? And then we, we collectively make rules about, have agreement about being on the phone, and then somebody's completely ignoring that. So, you know, this is all the kind of stuff, it's a, it's a learning process, right? And we're learning together. Um, but this, this whole idea that, you know, this is, this is really yours, and you have responsibility to, if, if it's going to succeed, it's, it's, a, it's a process of learning, I think. That's been a challenge. 
Um, the other big challenge we've had um, have probably just been sort of typical problems that you have in any workplace of interpersonal problems. But mm. when there's a boss and there's, mm. uh, when there's aggravation going on among workers, I think there's a way in which the boss can kind of squelch that. And workplace democracy, it's easier for that to, to manifest and for it to uh, interfere with everything and create a bad environment. So we've spent time uh, processing and trying to get to the bottom of this and that. So that interpersonal thing has been, has been a, a piece of work. So you're suggesting democracy is messy. It is messy. <laughs> it is messy. It is, yes. Sanjay, I'd love to get you to respond to Emily, because I know you've been researching this. Can you give us a bigger landscape picture of some of the the benefits and challenges Emily's just raised. What have you been learning in the research you've done on worker-owned enterprises? Right, so I think the most uh, consistent finding in terms of benefits is that both ESOPs as well as co-ops uh, provide better job security. So they hire less when times are good, but they also fire less when times are bad, including during economic downturns, such as the recent Great Recession, um, a lot of people have been talking about erratic scheduling lately. Another thing that I've mm -hmm. found in a lot of the co-ops I've looked at is they actually do things to address this. Mm -hmm. So um, Cooperative Home Care Associates in the Bronx, which is by far the biggest co-op in the country, 2,400 workers, um, they have implemented a guaranteed minimum hours policy where if you are on call for a certain number of you know, hours each week and fulfill other basic requirements, you get 30 hours of pay even if you don't actually work 30 hours. And so that's a way of actually stabilizing you know, people's incomes. Of course, we, not, we need to think not only about income inequality, but income volatility, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then another, another thing that I would point to, uh, just thinking more generally about you know, the, the surge in co-op development that I spoke about earlier, a lot of this has been happening in the domestic work industry, actually, among home care providers, nannies, uh, and house cleaners. So domestic workers, uh, you know, they're largely immigrant women of color who face a lot of barriers to traditional employment for a range of different reasons. Um, because of the you know, exclusions from the NLRA, that of course you know a lot about, um, and the structure of the industry, they've also had- National Labor Relations Act, for those of you that don't know the Thank alphabet you. soup. <laughs> right. Um, so they've also had a really hard time forming unions historically, right? And so co-ops in these kinds of conditions they don't, it's not a silver bullet. Um, domestic workers still have to contend with these very individualized relationships of power with their clients. Um, there's all these issues that, you know, Emily raised in terms of like, you know, actually learning how to run a business. There's a, there's a steep learning curve and I think that's something that's a challenge. In a lot of cases, incubating organizations play a really important role in helping to walk new organizations through those steps. Um, but what we've also seen in that is that in a number of these co-ops, they do pay above market wages. I think we still need to do a little bit more research to assess whether, that, whether that's a general pattern. And the other thing I would say is that um, they really create a means for collective empowerment, the exercise of collective agency in conditions where historically it's been nearly impossible. Mm -hmm. right? And so it's an alternative, you know, in a circumstance where you can't form a union this has been something that's, um, that's been an important alternative. Thank you. Yeah. I, want, I want to switch gears a little bit and get to, since we decided democracy is messy, everyone seemed to know that in this room. 
Um, but that was, we were talking about workplace democracy. Now I want to get to democracy at large and really the politics of inclusive economic growth and inclusive economic development. And Marjorie, I want to come to you first on this because you provide a great discussion in your report mm -hmm. on the really great steps forward many cities made in shifting gears mm -hmm. to go in the inclusive direction, but then revert it back to traditional strategies. So yeah. talk to us about yeah. what you learned, what, what, were, what were the reasons why cities that wanted to move forward like Richmond ended up having to pull back and rely on traditional approaches? Yeah, well, we, um, what he's referring to here is a report. Here's, a, here's your commercial break here. Uh, this just came out in November. We have some flyers for this, and you can get it free on our, our website, too. But um, we, um, so I want to point to two trends. Number one is we, we looked around the country, and we found like 30 cities that we think are doing some pretty cutting-edge stuff. I mean, nobody's like solved poverty. <laughs> but, um, uh, and, and Richmond is one, and some of the others that I've, that I've mentioned. So there's some exciting stuff happening, cities large and small, all over the country. So I want to I wanna, uh, point to that. But, you know, we also found some research by economic development professionals saying that, on the whole, a lot of economic development is moving backwards. People often talk about uh, third wave strategies, that we're in a, an era of third wave strategies. Well, the first wave is, and this is a common uh, meme among our researchers, and the first wave is about using incentives to attract, mm -hmm. uh, second wave is more about supporting local businesses, and third wave tends to be more economic justice and, uh, you know, developing local businesses and so forth. <clears throat> so there's, I think a lot of people have felt there's this feeling in economic development, oh great, we're all in the third wave. Well, uh, some researchers actually went and got some data from, uh, you know, a large um, database of what cities are actually doing. And they found that in the last 10 years, particularly in the last uh, six or so years since the Great Recession, a lot of communities have stepped back from what they were doing before. That support for um, uh, loan funds, support for CDCs um, have, have dropped by about half. So in other words, the percentage of cities doing this kind of support has fallen by about half. Mm. Uh, those who that are fewer than a quarter were, do, were developing small businesses, which was um, uh, surprising and, and disappointing. On the other hand, incentives had surged. So the number of cities that were relying on incentives has pretty much doubled. Um, we're having some disagreement on that comment. Um, you know, more than 90% of cities are now using incentives. And, and, and one of the saddest facts is fewer and fewer cities are measuring the effectiveness of those incentives. Mm. They used to measure the effectiveness, and they're not mm. anymore. And as one person says, we're going back to an era of uh, shoot anything that flies, claim anything that falls. Uh, you know, if you can get something going, you know, claim it. So while there are pockets of hope and we think real seeds of something new and exciting, there's, there's some uh, alarming trends overall. Thank you. Mayor Jones, uh, I also want to get to the politics question with you. And as I was listening to you and, and reading about what you've done in Richmond, there are these Silicon Valley words that came in my head, innovator, disruptor. Um, <laughs> And, and I'm wondering, as you were disrupting business as usual and offering an alternative vision and strategy, how did you make the case to business leaders, to city councilors, to other leaders in Richmond that this was a viable strategy going forward? 
Well, you know, actually, it's not been difficult. Hmm. It's, it's about identifying a need and having a champion for that need. And we found that we have a very strong uh, business community, and you've been talking to some of the leaders in our business community who always want to know what they can do mm -hmm. to help. And we usually don't have a specific thing or an answer for them. But this is something that they can mm -hmm. put, put their hands on. Uh, the biggest challenge for me and government is changing the culture of government which is check the box, do the next thing, you know, wait for five o'clock so we can get off, you know. Uh, but really making government accountable to the people and making the uh, transformational change that needs to happen. And uh, I'm in my last year of office and I can't run again. So what we did was we've codified the Office on Community Wealth Building mm. so that whoever follows me will not be able to dismantle this without a lot of trouble. And uh, the director of the Office of Community Wealth Building reports directly to the mayor. Hmm. And the next mayor will have to make two reports to the city on uh, poverty reduction uh, every year during his term, his or her term. So I mean, it's, it's about um, transformational leadership. Mm -hmm. um, Emily, you had mentioned earlier you wish Springfield had the services that Richmond did. Would you be interested in running for mayor? <laughs> 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 Your term is up. <laughs> in all seriousness, I, yeah. to, I actually wanted to come to you next. Uh, I, I'm half serious. Um, can you talk to us about how you make the case to anchor institutions? You said anchor institutions were a key part of your strategy. How do you make the case, particularly hospitals, I think, how, do you, how did you make the case that, to anchor institutions that they, they should be a part of this alternative and a more inclusive strategy? Well, we did appeal to self-interest. Mm -hmm. um, we, we, we are definitely building on the Evergreen model. So we, we learned a lot from Ted about how they frame this. So in terms of supporting your local community, the hospitals, the colleges in Springfield have a real stake in seeing the surrounding neighborhoods in, um, in the city prosper because you know, when you have students coming to your college and they're driving to really hard hit looking neighborhoods, it's bad for, it's bad for them. And same for the hospital. Um, so there's self-interest there. They're under pressure to, um, to green their supply chain. Mm -hmm. So we're building out businesses that are as green as possible. Um, they, they are nonprofits and so they have this mission of, of being concerned about the, the community colleges and hospitals in particular um, have that kind of concern built in. So it was not hard at all to bring the, um, the anchor institutions on board. Now that being said, mm -hmm. um, I think we took a, a very different route in that we're a medium-sized city. We don't have a big foundation like in Cleveland mm -hmm. where the Cleveland Foundation really took the lead. They were able to go straight to the CEO level mm -hmm. of the hospitals and colleges and universities. Right. We had none of that. Mm -hmm. So we started with who we knew at the hospital, right, um, uh, who we knew at the colleges. We've built it like that. We've had to build a lot more on what exists, uh, what, w making the connections as we go. Uh, we don't have deep pockets. It's been really hard scrabble. Um, so it, mm -hmm. it's a kind of a different model. Um, and that's also why a lot of what we're looking forward to to building and laying the foundation for is not just based on anchor institution demand. Mm -hmm. Some of it is about mm -hmm. conversion. Some mm -hmm. of it is about um, 
looking for that bottom-up grassroots um, kernel of energy in the immigrant community or, or this, that, or the other. Um, yeah, so the last thing I'll say about anchor institutions, uh, at the end of the day, when you're actually trying, it's, it's one thing getting them involved in the nonprofit, right? right. Get, getting them to, to sign the memo of understanding, which we drafted really early on and has been very, very important. I, I'm a firm believer that if we hadn't drafted this MOU early on and actually talked about worker co-ops, it would have hmm. gone off on this sidetrack of, well, let's just channel uh, purchasing. Uh, to whatever, whatever businesses, local local businesses, and we worker co-ops for all the reasons that have been mentioned are really important to us. So that wasn't such a hard sell. What's what's a hard sell is actually doing the business, mm. landing the job. Mm. Right? It's a we can appeal to the mission, but at the at the end of the day, if the price isn't right, forget it. Mm. They're purchasing. People are first looking at the mm. price, and then if all things being equal, then the mission will tip the balance. Mm. Or there's a little bit of wiggle room. They'll pay a little bit more. But uh, yeah, you have to be competitive at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. yeah. Sanjay, I was struck by what Emily said earlier about the challenges to worker ownership models in terms of what, you know, deliberative democracy or very messy democracy. Mm -hmm. uh, on the other hand, we know employee engagement is a key factor in the success of any enterprise, whatever, whatever its ownership structure. Can you talk to us about what we know from the research and the literature on the elements of employee engagement leading to success, particularly in worker ownership models. What's the nature of the worker engagement that's different from traditional models? Um, yeah, so I think, I think one thing that's important to point out to start out with is that you know, ownership and control don't have to go together. In many ESOP firms, they don't. But what we see is that the positive effects in terms of you know, worker productivity and a host of other things are enhanced when the two are coupled together, right? So ownership provides an incentive to participate, <coughs> and then control mechanisms kind of provide the means. Um, and in terms of, what was the second part of the question again? Well, what do we know just in terms of, in terms of the big picture view? What do we know about the elements of worker engagement, employee engagement in a firm? What, what, what do we know about worker ownership leading to greater employee engagement versus right. traditional, traditionally structured firms? Well, I guess, you know, I would answer that by sort of pointing to the, the great diversity mm -hmm. of forms of governance that you see in worker cooperatives. And so um, in a small worker cooperative, you'll, you'll in many cases have direct democracy. Um, you know, people sitting around a table and making decisions sometimes by consensus or majority vote. Um, and so that's obviously a way of increasing engagement. Uh, as co-ops grow in size, you see that there's like kind of more of a mix of direct and representative democracy. So you'll have like a board of directors, you know, that kind of thing, which in some ways looks something like a conventional firm. You even see it sometimes as, you know, as worker co-ops, um, you know, get really big that they start to implement more traditional forms of bureaucratic hierarchy. They might even hire a manager. But the difference is that mm -hmm. the ultimate sort of hierarchy of power is inverted. So the workers have ultimate hiring and firing authority rather than the other way around. And so I think what you see is that sort of depending on the size and where the co-ops are located, they really find a way to preserve democracy 
while at the same time doing what they really need to um, in order to you know, succeed in the marketplace. Um, a couple, you know, a couple of other points, just in terms of the business case mm -hmm. for worker co-ops, because mm -hmm. I think that's important. It's like, okay, they're great, participatory, but can they actually succeed as businesses? Right. Do, they, do they, they make profit? In this case, in two years, though. Mm -hmm. right. mm -hmm. Sometimes you just got to wait. Um, but I think one of the one of the really key points is that you know there's this perception that worker co-ops we don't see many of them because they just go out of business they're inefficient. But actually, research by an economist, Eric Olson at UMKC. Uh, shows that that's not the case. The reason that we have such a scarcity of worker co-ops is because few of them are started up in the first place. Mm -hmm. And that gets back to issues of you know, raising the necessary capital, which is very much related to like community banks you know, mm -hmm. and kind of a larger ecosystem. Um, and so I think that that's, you know, that's another um, important thing to keep in mind, just like, yeah. yeah. Thank you. So this is the lightning round portion of the program. <laughs> I'm going to ask two questions, and we'll get some quick responses. And then we're going to open it up for Q&A with all of you in our physical audience, not, so unfortunately, those viewing. Um, although you could probably tweet, right, you Maureen? You can tweet a question. You can tweet a question. Um, use hashtag talkgoodjobs. So if you want to ask a question, you're watching online. So um, lightning round question number one, and this is a big picture question um, for all of you. What's one trend, it could be an economic trend, a political trend, a social trend, that you think is creating a more supportive environment for inclusive economic development strategies? And one trend that may threaten the development or expansion of these strategies. So what's one big picture trend you see supportive and supporting these alternative and more inclusive strategies? And then what's one trend you think is threatening these strategies? Sorry? You want to go first? Sure. Um, so I guess in terms of thinking about the sort the supportive trend, I would go back to what Maureen was talking about at the beginning and that and what you have touched upon as well, Doreen, which is the rising, you know, we've had rising inequality and in recent years we've had growing attention to inequality and movements that are actually mobilizing to try to change things. So you had the Occupy movement, um, you know, you have the fight for 15 now that in a different but related way is really trying to address the problem of economic inequality. Um, we have the Black Lives Matter movement that is pointing to deeply rooted inequalities in our racial institutions that need to change the conversation. Uh, and I think all of this broader ferment really creates an environment in which, um, you know, it's kind of hospitable for thinking about creating more inclusive economic, political, social institutions. And it's not just about you know, what policymakers can do, even though that's really important. It's about how can ordinary working people really remake the economy from the ground up, right? In terms of you know, negative trends, I think it would be the you know, continued power of entrenched interests that are really not about economic democracy. Mm -hmm. um, Having said that, I think it's important to remember that this isn't a completely Manichaean fight, right? Um, and so you do have employers that are out there that really want to do the right thing, that want to take the high road. I think of this company, Bob's Red Mill. Some of you have probably heard of it. I eat their oatmeal every morning. Um, and the, you know, the founder of the company, Bob, just decided one fine day, you know, he was thinking about retirement, that he wanted to transfer ownership to his employees. Mm. And so he transferred 100% ownership. He wanted that to be his legacy. 
And so I think it's also about building bridges. Hmm. Um, Great. And let's, Great. let's come down this way. Yeah, sure. OK, so you know, what, what's a big picture trend? Um, right now, there is a massive wave of baby boom owner entrepreneur retirements hmm. um, hitting. It's hitting now. It'll be hitting for the next 15, 20 years or so. Um, it's being called a multi-trillion dollar opportunity. I mean, no business lasts forever, right? So you either pass it on to your children or you, or you sell it or, or, you or you close it. Only one in seven want to pass it on to their children. And so there's all, all these business stuff. Are they going to close? Are they going to be sold to private equity? Could they be converted to employee ownership? We, we see a huge, huge opportunity here. So that, that I think is supportive. Uh, what do I think is threatening? Mm -hmm. um, nobody knows about employee ownership. Hmm. Even impact investors don't talk about it. Uh, at, at the at government, people are not talking about it. It's, it's, it's invisible. Somehow it manages to remain invisible. And what are, what are, uh, what are happening to a lot of these firms? Um, we're starting to see uh, being sold to private equity. I talked to a friend uh, last week in Minneapolis, whose firm was just sold to private equity, and I laughed. Uh, I said, well, so what happened? And I knew what had happened, and it was right. They had laid off a couple hundred people. She's now doing two jobs. She used to do one, now she's doing two. And um, this, this is what happens, mm -hmm. you know? And so, uh, and believe me, private equity has plenty of money. Everybody knows what it is. Everybody knows how it works. And we've got this great solution, and nobody knows what it is. So there you go. Thank you, Mayor Jones. <laughs> Yeah, from a local government perspective, I mean, I think that um, uh, the trend is uh, good for us because our city is so resurgent. Uh, we're really becoming um, a city that is being noticed all over the world. And so uh, I think that people are recognizing that in order for us to uh, walk into our destiny, we're going to have to do something about poverty. And I think that that spirit is contagious um, because we have um, uh, individuals who are beginning to do some things. We talked a lot about co-ops today, but I'm talking about some pro programmatic things. Uh, one guy has started a uh, cycling core uh, with young people who live in public housing, and he's using that as an entree to get these young people interested uh, in having uh, a better life, and many things are, are going on like that. Also, I think that there's a spirit of entrepreneurism that is uh, rising up in the minority community. Uh, my age group, you know, we were about getting a job. Uh, now, uh, people in the minority community are talking about starting their own businesses. And I think that's extremely positive. And I think that that's going to uh, accrue to benefit uh, erasing poverty in our communities. And of course, I think that for all of us, from what I've heard, that the problem is entrenchment. You know, people who don't want to go forward who think change is a dirty word. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, I'm going to put on a different hat um, so, uh, and talk about solidarity economies. Just out of curiosity, mm. how many people have heard of solidarity economy? Very few. Okay, mm. so um, it really is about changing the whole paradigm. But it's not about uh, throwing out a, a theoretical blueprint and then try to get people to conform. It's more about theory following practice. So looking at the mm. ground, mm. seeing what's out there, co-ops, community land trusts, CSAs, social currency. There's there are examples of things being done, economic activities being done in a different way, right? That's more equitable, that's solidaristic, um, that's democratic, um, that's concerned with community and environment, right? 
in every sector of the economy, these things are going on there. So worker co-ops are really like an important spine. Um, but there's lots of other examples. It's yes. all invisible. It's, it's all invisible. Mm -hmm. um, but I just want to mention what's, uh, what's going on on a national and international level. So I'm the coordinator of the National Solidarity Economy Network. We're hooked into an international network. Um, and just to give you an example, so the UN, United Nations now has a task force on so social solidarity economy. The ILO, the International Labor Organization, runs an annual solidarity economy um, academy. There are countries that have, in, uh, have integrated solidarity economy into their constitution, so Bolivia and Ecuador. There are other countries that have passed framework national legislation platforms that requires the government, so not just cities, but the whole government apparatus to create a supportive environment for the social solidarity economy. So this is a growing global trend, um, and it really builds on real world practice. It's very humble. It's saying we don't have all the answers, but we're trying to take these pieces that exist that are invisible and pull them together to really create paradigm shift and system change. Mm -hmm. um, uh, 30 seconds or less. For those of us, this is a group of transformational leaders up here in terms of thinking and doing the work of inclusive economic development. For those of us that are not, the rest of us, what's one takeaway that you could provide in terms of how we can support this effort at whether it's solidarity economies, inclusive economic development, what, would you, what advice would you give us and how can we become more engaged in the work that all of you are doing? So let's start here and go that way. Um, so I don't know if there are any X-File fans out there, but I want to believe and I would encourage people. You're right, you have to believe, right? You do, right? Because one of the things we face is that old Tina syndrome, right? There is no alternative. And so then you're stuck in the kind of, so it is a mind, it is a mind shift. Um, and to take that from, from what, you, what you believe is possible, right? That we really can build something better than what we have. Um, and then there's a million things from there that can be done. For you millennials, the X-Files is a show from, I think, the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently there's a reboot that just aired on a network recently. Mayor, Mayor Jones. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, it, it can be done. It's, it's possible and that all of us can, can make a difference. We've set a goal to reduce poverty enrichment by 40% in the next 15 years. Mm. And we're working hard on making that happen. And so, you know, every day is another day. It's uh, didn't it took a long time to get us where we are in this hole. Mm. It will take us a little while to get out of it, but I think it can be done. I know it can be done. And, and how can we join that effort? Well, I mean, I, I think that uh, it needs to become a part of the the narrative in local communities. Mm. And I know that we've been talking about cooperatives, but I think that in terms of politics mm -hmm. and government, in terms of people who want to lead you in terms of what their agenda is for the reduction of poverty. Mm. And we need to kind of make that a part of the, the conversation. And they, we have the power, we talked about it in the green room, that it's not necessarily happening on the national or the state level, but it certainly can happen on the uh, local level. Yes. And I was in the General Assembly of Virginia for 15 years, and I left legislation because I wanted to be an executive where I could get things done. Mm -hmm. And so people who have that executive authority need to be held to accountability to make sure that they do the right thing. Thank you. 
Yeah, well, I guess I would say I think we all need to start where we are. Get involved in your local community. That's where it starts. Think about the assets that you have to work with. Everybody has a different set of assets. I don't just mean financial assets. Knowledge, networks, you know, you have an organization around you. Um, work with the assets that you have at hand. Think about what those are. And, and I think all, all of us ought to be thinking about our investments in, in particular. Um, and uh, can we localize a little bit of our invest, investments? Put them in a local community development financial institution or a little loan fund. Or, and can, we, can we think about bringing this big economy sort of back down to the ground and, and, and be doing a little piece of that? I guess I would just amplify a point that I think a lot of us have been talking about, which is that we need to you know, fundamentally rethink the nature of our democracy. We need to, to deepen democracy and the political arena in ways that we've been talking about. Um, but also we need to think about how to extend it into the economic arena, right? Most people when they go to work, they're, they're employed in a fundamentally autocratic environment where the gains are divided in an extremely, even absurdly unequal way. Um, and so how can, we, how can we change that? And I think clearly not everyone in this room or who's listening is going to go out and start a co-op, but there are things that we can do in our organizations, you know, for policymakers and others that are supportive to people who want to start to build those alternatives. So. I'll just add one thing we haven't mentioned here, but um, it's now there's an experiment of this in my hometown of Chicago, but it's also been in practice in New York City where I live now for a number of years, I've actually participated in this, and that's participatory budgeting, yeah. mm -hmm. which is a, a different way to think about inclusive economic development, <coughs> of getting residents engaged literally in the process of voting on which development projects they want their representatives to pursue. So it's an exciting, if you have participatory budgeting in your town or, or city, or if you don't, you should ask your representative, what about this thing? They do it in West Palm Beach, they do it in New York, they do it in Chicago, they do it in lots of other places. Why can't we do it here? So I'll just throw that out. We have some time for questions from you, so I think we should collect a few, um, and then we'll have the panelists respond. I, so I do have a couple Twitter questions, Ray. Um, Great. So one, one was just a question on generally what could be the role of the federal government in mm -hmm. this in supporting inclusive Great. economic development and, and how that could spur economic mobility. And one was a, a more specific question about whether anybody is familiar with or using community benefits agreements. Uh -huh. So let's, while you think about those, let's collect a few more from um, the audience, the Aspen staff. Will. Hi, uh, Rick McGahey with the uh, Institute for uh, New Economic Thinking. Uh, these are very interesting uh, examples which show how hard it is to do these transactions on the ground, but the subtitle of the thing was about, said, regions, and we heard mm. about small things in cities. Mm. So I, I have a question about scalability of this approach. Community Health uh, Cooperatives in the Bronx was founded in 1985. It's a great organization, but that's 30 years mm. ago. Um, and, and what do you do about our cities who are still largely confined in regional economies mm -hmm. surrounded by mostly white affluent suburbs who drop their economic problems into the city? So uh, there wasn't any real discussion of the politics of that. So uh, Great. that was two big ones, but I'd love to hear more about that. Great. Let's take two more. Uh, Pete. Pete Carlson with uh, Regional Growth Strategies here in DC. Uh, actually, it's a question for Mayor Jones. Uh, I just spent the last couple of days in New Orleans at the uh, 
annual leadership summit of the uh, International Economic Development Council, which is sort of the economic development establishment. And a third of the program was devoted to inclusive economic development. Uh, and the top research priority for the coming year is to better understand inclusive economic development. And the chair of the organization has made that a top priority, Barry Matherly, who is uh, the head of economic development in Richmond for the Greater Richmond Partnership. I'm curious, how does Barry's interest and commitment in this manifest itself on the ground in Richmond? Uh, and if, or if it doesn't, how would you like to see that? What would you, what do you think that ought to look like uh, for a business-led regional economic development organization to play a role in promoting inclusive economic development? Let's take one more. Hello. Uh, my name is Kayla Bamberger. I'm with Naomi Klein's This Changes Everything project. Um, I have sort of a more overarching question, which is I'm hearing um, if equity and inclusivity can be not versus growth, but in tandem with growth. And my question is sort of, can we have economic development without growth? Is there room for a non-growth um, development model that takes into account the sort of finite world we live in, in terms of the resources we have to put into this concept of development. Great, thank you. So let me just mm -hmm. go through what I, what I think I heard. So there's a question about the federal government's role in these strategies. There's the question, the scale question, as well as the region question. So the scale question in terms of worker ownership, worker-owned enterprises, as well as how do all of these strategies fit within a broader regional context. There's a question about community benefit agreements, which are essentially private agreements between developers, usually community organizations, sometimes unions, around more equitable development, so CBAs. There's a Richmond-specific question, and then the final question is about non-growth strategies. We might add to that sustainable growth strategies in terms of thinking about the limits of growth and a sustainable planet. So any of those you want to take on, um, <laughs> feel free. And Mayor Jones, if you wanted to start with the very specific question, and then you can answer any of the other ones as well. Yeah, I, I think that what we're doing on the local level is uh, very grassroots. Uh, and I didn't get a chance to talk about all of the things that we're doing with people that relate to education, early childhood education, mm. uh, middle school, out of time, school time. Um, college uh, grants, making sure these kids go to college if they stay the course during school. Uh, we haven't talked about transportation. We're starting BRT, a bus rapid transit system in Richmond. We have one of the worst transportation systems in the country, but we're working on that because if they can't get to the jobs, it doesn't matter. So we're kind of grassroots where GRP, the, the uh, Greater Richmond Partnership, is more of a traditional economic development, let's go get the company to come here and uh, their notches on their belt if they can achieve that. Uh, they're not really that concerned about what they do when they get there. They just want to be able to say, you know, we got this company for you, so pay your dues. <laughs> you know, so we've got, to, we've got to acculturate them. They've got a learning curve that once we are able to do some of the things we're doing, we'll take that on. But that's not really my big, uh, big deal right now. 
but it's interesting that you were there and heard the guy from Richmond. <laughs> Any other of the questions you want to respond to? Well, I mean, the, the feds, I mean, the federal government, I mean, we're doing, we're, we want, what we're doing, we're doing because it is so hard to navigate the federal government and try to pull down dollars from agencies mm. to work with your congressmen and your senators and so forth and uh, to try to get that done is almost impossible. And so it's like we've decided we're going to do it ourselves. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we can find a way to overlap with the federal government and get some money, that's my, well and good, but we're not going to be dependent on that. Mm -hmm. sure. um, so, scalability question. I think we need you to use that microphone. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so, the scalability question is obviously uh, a huge one. Uh, there are basically, as I see it, three pathways to scale. So you can start new co-ops. Uh, you can grow an existing one, like CHCA started small and then became really big. You can also convert an existing business, you know, that has a more traditional ownership structure to worker ownership. Uh, and the challenges of growing a business to the size of CHCA are significant. And there's a, so ESOP, ESOP firms are almost always formed through conversions and there's now a growing conversation uh, in the co-op community about conversions, basically using, you know, you have the platform of an existing firm that's already successful, how can you, you know, create a co-op out of that? Of course, the problem there is... What's that? I mean, co-ops and ESOPs aren't the same. No, no, no. Yes, but, but, you know, built on top of an ESOP, you can develop a co-op-like structure. But the challenge, of course, is, you know, with conversion is, you know, you, you might have an existing owner who uh, is interested in doing an ESOP conversion but not really giving up control rights. There's a smaller number of owners who are actually going to have economic democracy in mind, so that's one of the challenges. In terms of the role that the federal government can play, um, one of the things that's been really effective at the state level is employee ownership centers that basically educate people about employee ownership, um, provide hands-on assistance in various aspects of developing you know, a worker-owned business. Uh, as Marjorie said, one of the big problems is people just don't know that this is even a possibility. And so I think one of the, one of the things that the federal government could potentially do um, is to create some kind of an organization at the national level um, that perhaps you know support some of the you know development of like state and, and local level institutions that do this kind of work. Mm -hmm. so. Do I need to use this or no? I think oh, that's just, for some. Okay, yeah. okay, great. It's a special microphone for some. All right. <laughs> I want one. Yeah, um, I, I'll say a few things. I think the federal government could do since we are right here in Washington D.C. and maybe they're listening. Um, it's open again, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I heard the streets are cleared around. On the White House. Three hours late. Um, local investing, enabling local investing. I mean, the SEC is preparing mm. uh, guidelines now to, to make this more expansive. I think that, that needs continuing attention. But I think, I think we could see uh, an explosion of, of local investing, particularly with the markets as rocky as they are. It might be very welcome uh, for all of us. Supporting CDFIs, they already do that. Uh, First President Clinton supported that. And um, I think we want to see an expansion of that critical, critical role of the federal government. I think employee ownership, I think there is a role for the federal government in funding. I think it's pretty simple. Um, and there have been some proposals floated um, at the federal level on that. 
With CRA, the Community Reinvestment Act, which requires banks to support their local communities, I think we, we need to see the evolution of CRA, maybe broader requirements, extend it to mutual funds and to other players and not just banks. Um, and um, and I'll, say, I'll say a final thing, and that is with this whole idea of, of uh, incentives and, and cities poaching um, from each other jobs. I've been told by Greg Leroy that one of the things that the federal government could do with virtually the stroke of a pen is they could say, you don't get your community development block grant if you're poaching jobs from other cities. Hmm. Period. End of story. This, this, this could end at, at, a, at the stroke of a pen. So uh, that's one thing that, that could happen. Um, yeah, let's see. So community benefits, I'll say that the Bay State, which is uh, one of the largest employers and one of our, our partners, um, they, they were able to um, leverage community benefit money that they had to, they, had, they were obliged uh, to use. So they channeled some of that mm. our way a couple times. Um, and uh, there was a lot of interest from other hospitals in using these kind of models as a, a way to channel their community benefits money. Um, in terms of that regional and scalability question, um, I'll say that in our, in our area in Western Mass, uh, the difference in kind of in regions, right? So there's the upper valley and there's the lower valley. And the upper valley um, is separated by what we sometimes call the tofu curtain. There's a, it's the Holyoke <laughs> mountain range. Mm. The upper valley is where the five colleges are and it is co-op rich. It is one of the probably, for such a small area, it's probably got one of the greatest densities of worker co-ops in the country. Um, and then below the tofu curtain, there's none, none, none. So we're, the first, so we're trying to bring that kind of that model down below, right into the urban areas, into the areas that are really, you know, hard hit. Um, it's kind of a struggle, uh, and, and, and it's, it's a process of building those relationships with the Upper Valley. Um, one of the things that we're doing, I mentioned we're working with Greenfield, which is at the very, very top end of the Upper Valley. Um, and through, the, through Bay State, which has a, a, a hospital up there, right, they're supporting, they put up money to, to look into a hospital that might well be part of, of the Wellspring Network. Um, so that's interesting, right? It's interesting thought about how to scale up and how to regionalize. So we're, we're really developing that analysis. Um, yeah, looking for those opportunities. So I, I do want to get you all to respond. Since you mentioned tofu curtain, there is the sustainability question and the growth question, right? Can you have, yeah. I think the question is, can you have development without growth, which, which is also part of the bigger sustainability conversation. So maybe tofu is one way. I don't know how sustainable a crop it is, frankly. But can, can, you, can you respond to that question in terms of sustainability of all of your strategies? And then we'll, we'll have Maureen come up and close okay. this out. Anyway, you want us each, or I'd be happy to throw something out. Like go for it. <laughs> yeah, OK. Yeah, I, I want to thank. Uh, you, for that question, I, I'm a huge fan of Naomi Klein's book. If you haven't read it, you should. It's called This Changes Everything. <coughs> fabulous, fabulous book. How all the problems we have are, are designed into the system as we have. It's, it's delivering the exact outcomes it's designed to deliver. <coughs> and so how do we, yeah, how does any of this relate to sustainability? I mean, it's something I think about a lot. And I think, I think the first thing is, 
is that uh, corporations and capital markets, as we have them now, I think can help in a rapid transition to a green economy. Uh, it's just, it's, it's, they're, they're not going away anytime soon. Um, so I, I think that, that that can actually be helpful. But I think over the long term, we are building toward a completely different kind of economy. Either we're building toward it or we're going to fall into it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but we do know, I think beyond a doubt, that 50 years from now, we're going to be in a very different economy. Not going to be rapid growth. It's not going to be a few people getting richer and richer and richer. We're not going to see the Dow at 1,000, you know, three times, a million times it is now. I mean, this game is not going to go on forever. And so what, you know, when we do transition, what does a new kind of economy look like? Well, it has to be an economy that's not dependent on growth. And I'll tell you, what's dependent on growth more than anything is the stock market. I mean, if you, if you, if you follow it at all, you know, if a CEO, you know, back in the days, I, uh, I, I used to interview CEOs and talk about, you know, what they're doing. And I remember a CEO telling me one day, he said, if I miss my earnings projections by, two, or by a penny or two, he said, my stock doesn't fall a couple of percent. It can fall 50% in a day, you know? And so it's the relentless taskmaster is this, is this, this market that has to go up all the time. And you know, once that is somehow tamed by a mechanism we, we probably don't want to think about very much, <laughs> once that is tamed a little bit and you can begin to develop a different kind of economy, um, I think it's not going to be as dependent on growth. I mean, if we, you have an employee-owned firm. An employee-owned firm is this odd animal. It can reach a nice high level and stay there. It can reach nice high profits and stay there. They don't have to go up quarter after quarter after quarter. That's a kind of a fantasy that we're trapped in now. But that we're, we can't stay trapped in it forever because it just won't work. Um, and so I think that a broadly owned, locally owned economy is actually more suited to a post-growth world. And so we're kind of building that over the long term. Meanwhile, the world we're in is going to be kind of falling apart in its own way, hopefully transitioning rapidly to green at the same time. And we don't know exactly how all that's going to happen. But you know, I, I have been kind of a student of a systems thinking. And some of you think about this question a lot. It's systems thinking comes out of physics. Um, and one of the things that systems thinking tells us is that you can trans systems, living systems, can transition to a new state quite suddenly. In fact, that is how they transition. It's not this gradual, gradual thing. It's, it's a sudden kind of break and a new, a new form of organization appears. So um, we, we know science tells us that's likely how it's going to play out. Mm -hmm. uh, what that looks like, we don't, we don't know. But um, we can hope for the best. That'll have to be the next to last word because Maureen gets the last word. But let's Great. thank first Sanjay, Marjorie, Mary Jones, and Emily. to encourage you to all come back. We will be uh, back here March 15th uh, talking with Heather Boucher about her book, Finding Time. So please uh, do join us then. And again, thank you for coming. And thanks to our panel.